0: Miranda July she kind of, uh, she made a couple movies wrote a, at least one book and performance artist people anybody familiar with her her stuff one, yeah a few have ha- Miranda July yeah she's one of those um, I don't know of genius that's sort of very difficult to situate. Like you don't know what she is exactly. You can't call her exactly like a writer and filmmaker. She does a lot, and she um, she does these very kind of curious projects. Uh, that uh, one of which I participated in. That was quite uh, uh, evocative for me. So I wanted to reflect on it with you tonight. So what she did, she made this movie uh, three about three years ago called The Future. And as part of the, that movie, she had this email campaign where you could sign up um, to get an email every Monday and Thursday from her and she was pretending that the emails were from the future Mm -hmm. and she was like uh, the idea is like this is an this is like some kind of Oracle figure and she's sending you emails and they were fantastic and uh, very, they just like stop your mind in a certain way. And uh, for me, were just like a, a range of different responses would come up. And, uh, and she really, I don't know, is this facility to play with like the, the don't know mind of uh, somehow interrupting the ordinary expectations in a way that uh, creates a kind of interesting stillness. So, just as an example, I would get, I mean, they're, they're like, uh, you'll see. This, this, is what, this subject line was always your future. <laughs> and so this was one of them. Um, you've done something very wrong. Nobody knows but me. Mm -hmm. Knowing what I know, I say, don't confess, but find peace soon, somehow. Good luck, Miranda." (laughs) 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 So I get emails like this, and I'm like, okay. And the first question, like, have I done something really wrong? And it's actually just good to ask these kinds of questions to oneself. Um, and there are, I don't know what her background is exactly, or how much meditation practice she's done, or what her involvement is in, in this, but um, many of the, uh, the emails felt like infused with Dharma. And they, they reminded me of, uh, of our practice here. And so I want to read uh, read a few of them and provide some commentary on uh, from a kind of uh, how they relate to to the Buddhist teachings, to the Dharma, to this path. So here's one. Good job with how you handled everything last night. This proves once and for all. You are the right person to be you. (laughs) (laughs) Now, on the one hand, it's a kind of nice, supportive, I'm the right person to be me, yeah. That's good. Um, But there's another sense in which um, yeah, like, I am the right person to be me. Because if I were someone else, I'd be someone else, right? (laughs) And uh, there's a way in which, um, in reading that, it's like, um, for me what comes up is there's a certain bow to the totality of conditions that bring us to this moment and that make us who we are. And in our practice, we often, um, we often kind of um, overestimate our agency, you know? Like when we look back over our life, we see like, we often see it as like this self-created thing. And Dharma practice asks us to look more deeply to see the uh, uncountable contingencies that lead us to this moment. And all of the things that are um, outside of us, that make us who we are now. This is one of the uh, dimensions or aspects of these these teachings that we were talking about, about uh, self. And so, um, you know, on the one hand, it's of course fine and natural to, like, want to be someone else, right? Or what that really is expressing, want to grow, want to change, want to heal, want to awaken. And it's, it's important and wholesome to have aspirations. Uh, but there's also this, this gesture of, of, um, of kind of, uh, yeah, the word that comes to mind is bowing to all of the conditions that bring us to now. Finding some way to, to honor that and to, to know ourselves as the product of a million forces. And when we do this, it, it, um, it frees up the heart in a way. She writes, "Um, you give in to distraction as if it is a murderer. You lay there waiting to be killed. Today, fight for your life. We hear a lot about mindfulness, right? But there are probably times when nothing sounds better than some unconsciousness, right? It's like a lot of times when people, you know, on silent, on a silent, how many people have done silent retreat or residential retreat? Okay, great. A lot of times what's um, the sort of most enticing thought at the end of a period of silence and simplicity and renunciation is like, we're just so excited to get back to some unconsciousness, to the kind of cocoon of mindlessness. Yeah, And sometimes it even feels like a biological pressure that's being exerted, like we can almost taste it. You you know that feeling? Is this just me? (laughs) It's just me. It's just me. me. (laughs) Um, now, um, I've always wondered, what do, we, what do we make of that? What do we make of that time? You know, that moment when we're coming home, maybe we had a long day, a full day, and, uh, and we're tired, the body's tired, the mind feels tired. What do we make of that sense of, of needing to, like, kind of rejuvenate through unconsciousness? And how does that fit into our practice? Um, one of the ways that we, we know that uh, mindfulness is gaining scientific momentum is there's now a kind of backlash. Like when ideas in science are too small, nobody, there, there's no backlash. It's just like ignored and on the side. But uh, mindfulness in now has a significant enough body of research that uh, people are sort of appropriately coming out of the woodwork to challenge some of the central tenets of mindfulness. And one of the things that they ask is, given the ubiquity of Mindlessness, given how pervasive that is in our life, why would it be that evolution would conserve that habit over the eons? Right? Given that the first insight of insight meditation is, for me, like, I got like a circus gone wrong going on, you know. Like, that was my first realization in uh, meditation practice. This is, this is, right? That's the first insight. And it actually is an insight because if you had asked me before I started practice, I would have said, I know what's up, you know. Matthew, could you pay attention to your breath continuously for an hour? Yeah, probably, probably. That would have been my thought. And then I sit down for two minutes, and there it is, right? So the question is, like, why why is that um, such a universal experience, and what do we make of it? And, um, you know, the researchers have, they've identified some potential functions, healthy functions. This is heresy in traditional Buddhist thinking, but some functions of mindlessness. like It may actually serve some functions. It's not just a habit here to torment us while we sit still and meditate. Um, But um, while it may have some functions, we probably go overboard quite a bit, right, on the the unconsciousness. Um, and the instruction, when we are feeling depleted and tired and like we are just out of gas, the instructions to keep paying attention, that just, it's just not what we want to hear at all, right? You know, it's like, that's and that's it. That's enough. But... Um, Sometimes what may be happening is that uh, the way in which we're paying attention, there's some over-efforting in the way in which we're attending. And that, um, that, yeah, it's true, we can fatigue ourselves when we're trying to hold on to the breathing or to something in a kind of rigid way. And um, so this is, this is Sayadaw Tejaniya, who, who um, teaches a kind of, in a certain way, a different style of mindfulness that is not so much sinking into the objects, but is very light, but moving towards continuity. So, he says, Virya, energy or effort. uh, Virya is the spiritual faculty of patience and perseverance. I understand Virya as persistence, not exertion or force. Please don't wear out your mind or body by striving forcefully when you meditate. Understanding can't develop when your mind or body is tired. You can learn something thoroughly. If uh, you you can't learn, can you learn something thoroughly if you start and stop the process many times? Uh, you will miss the storyline in a TV series if you catch a few episodes and miss a few episodes. Similarly, only if awareness is continuous, where you see the beginning, middle, and end, will you then understand the true nature of experience that comes about through consistent practice from moment to moment. So, uh, how much effort does awareness take? Tejaniya will sometimes um, Say, like, do you know that you're seeing right now? You are seeing, but do you know that you're seeing? For most people, the answer is no. Unless you're actively practicing, like, mindfulness of the visual field. But then, as soon as I ask that question, do you know you're seeing? The awareness awakens to seeing. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And then the question is, how much effort did it take to become aware of seeing? Almost nothing. There's a way of paying attention. You know, in those moments when we feel so spent and kind of spacey, even in those times, uh, it is possible to pay a very light attention. And we think that spaciness is so far from spaciousness, But they're actually not so far removed. And we can actually practice paying attention in this very light way. Look what lust has done to your life. What? What has it done? Maybe not enough. Maybe too much. Today you notice. I've been getting these emails for three years. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> They're now on repeat, but I I'm, I'm, have not unsubscribed. I, <laughs> Look what lust has done to your life, what? What has it done? Maybe not enough, maybe too much. Today you notice. So in a Buddhist context, um, we usually focus on lust having done too much. But there's another side of lust uh, not having done enough. So, part of our practice is to become familiar, intimate with that experience of the ways in which lust has done too much. In the sense that we need to to know for ourselves what. Lust feels like, and in you know, in our experience, um, we there may be objects of pleasure, and getting them sensual contact, sexual contact <laughs> may be pleasurable. But we we also have to um, know. The kind of fiery pain of lust itself, of craving of various kinds. And, uh, you know, traditionally a kind, and I would say, I think this is true, a perfect happiness cannot exist in while lust is arising. That there's always a kind of burden on the heart when lust is present in the mind-body. And this is not meant at all to be kind of um, life-denying or um, something like that. There's a whole other side that I'll get to momentarily. But we do need to actually know for ourselves that the objects of our lust uh, always promise more than they can deliver. And that, um, that a life lived where we're um, only ever repeating our pleasures is not fully satisfying. It's like there's something in the heart that feels incomplete. And the Buddha pointed us to the kind of cycle of getting, of desire, getting, having, losing, desire. And some of the anxiety about that the fatigue that sets in. And there's a certain kind of almost a hopelessness that I often sense um, when that's all we think there is. It's just repeating pleasures. And so, um, You know, a lot of our practice is is dedicated to uh, seeing the limits of lust and the limits of what objects of sense desire can get us. How much they buy us. And so, in your own life, you can look, you know, as Miranda asks us, like, In what ways has lust done too much? But the conversation doesn't stop there because there are also uh, times and ways in which uh, maybe we can say lust has not done enough. So what do I mean by this? Some of our longings, our lust, uh, has important things to tell us. And we actually have to learn from and see that path of lust, see it through. And there are ways in which sometimes the spiritual path can become um, a way of not fully um, moving with and through lust, but a way of compartmentalizing it as this um, kind of dangerous, um, non-spiritual side of being human. But there's... a There's some caution that needs to be taken in using our spiritual practice as a way of insulating ourselves from our desires, from our longings. And there's sometimes when I hear people in their practice where I feel like um, the most important thing for them to do is actually to follow that longing because they need to see where it goes. They need to see what they learn. They need to honor that dimension of their experience. And there's a way in which um, uh, the, the experience of, of lust, of longing, um, puts us in touch with um, some very important teachings on vulnerability and feeling um, dependent on another, open to another. Stephen Mitchell, who, uh, not Stephen A. Mitchell, um, mm-hmm. who who's a, he died about 15 years ago, trans, uh, not the translator, the uh, psychologist and author, and uh, wrote a book called Can Love Last? The Fate of Romance Over Time. And in that book, he uh, Beautifully describes some of the the kind of risks and dangers of longing and of love. And uh, one of the things that um, that he's he's talking about this transformation of understanding sexuality in a more Freudian way as this like internal pressure, biological pressure that wells up. Um, and understanding it instead in a much more relational way. And so he writes, um, The real adventure and risk of sexuality stems from the breach it creates in the conventional boundaries between self and other. We establish decency in intimate relationships to facilitate continuity, security, and attachment. But bodily states and pleasures are full of surprises. What is at risk of of being considered indecent in the exposures of sex is not the beast, the Freudian beast in us, but the meanness in us. The meanness in us. And this whole realm of sexuality is, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, can be both an exploration of like the, how we can dissolve the boundaries of self, but also the exquisite tenderness and vulnerability. Of feeling like a self. The meanness. In the realm of sexuality, in the realm of lust, we feel the meanness in such an acute and poignant way. And some of our path is in. Deba- um, developing some courage and skill in navigating the intensity of that sense of meanness and the vulnerability of it, the dependence that we have on other people. So in our own lives, we can actually look, in what ways has lust, done too much, but maybe, maybe it's also a helpful question. Uh, in what ways has it not done enough? So maybe one more. You've felt bad before, but usually for the wrong reasons. If you feel badly today, It will be for terrific reasons. (laughs) (laughs) There is a suffering associated with being the puppet of greed, of hatred, of delusion. But there's also a suffering of taking a stand against greed, hatred, and delusion. And these are, we could say, the two kinds of suffering. And uh, one, to follow um, a line from Ajahn Shah leads to more suffering and the other form of suffering leads to the lessening or the end of suffering so if i suffer today it will be for terrific reasons this is a good day of practice hopefully this is not scaring people off of retreat and practice you know uh, but there are those those forms of suffering they have very different flavors, and one feels, um, you know, what Miranda says, suffering for the wrong reasons has a cyclical, claustrophobic, intolerable kind of taste. But to suffer for terrific reasons, you can um, develop a kind of taste of purification a, a kind of taste that this this pain is actually different and it's freeing the heart the analogy I use sometimes is like um, in doing yoga um, I don't know if yoga is supposed to hurt as much as it does when I do it but it Basically, the way I know I'm in the right posture is that everything hurts. <laughs> yeah, they're having a retreat, mindfulness, and yoga up there right now. Um, but the pain of like yoga hurting is so different. The pain of like exploring my edge a little bit is very different from the pain of injury. And you can almost taste in the the wholesome discomfort, you can almost taste the the relief. You can taste the wholesomeness of it, actually. Ajahn Chah says, um, people have suffering in one place, so they go somewhere else. When suffering arises there, they run off again. They think they're running away from suffering, but they're not. It goes with them. They carry suffering around without knowing it. If we don't know suffering, then we can't know the cause of suffering. If we don't know the cause of suffering, then we can't know the cessation of suffering. The Trappist monk was asked, uh, Thomas Merton, uh, basically lived much of his life in retreat, and was asked why he spent time in retreat, and his answer was um, uh, to suffer effectively. Which, to the ordinary mind, sounds like a contradiction in terms, right? But there are um, ways, of uh, forms of suffering that actually begin to open up our life. And, uh, you know, a lot of the kind of, I and mean, I'm a supporter of much of it, the popularizations of, of mindfulness, sometimes... Uh, what makes me hesitant is that there's a little bit of a sense of uh, um, something for nothing, and um, at the heart of this practice is a willingness. It's a willingness to, at not always, but at times, suffer effectively. And in doing this, we don't actually feel burdened by suffering. You know, I talk about suffering all the time, but uh, the heart becomes more and more free. So the encouragement is to, uh, to pay attention to uh, those two kinds of suffering. So Miranda maybe close with her saying uh, Oh the pain but today it vibrates to a new pitch and does more than hurt. Could it be Yes, it's the sound of a new idea. Let's just sit for a moment. So, as always, please pick up whatever is of some use and leave the rest behind. Whatever Momentum is created by our efforts, our intentions here together. May we sense their uh, value in the world. May whatever joy or ease, well-being that is ours, may this be of benefit for all that we encounter. Thank you. Nice to be with you tonight.